Today we continue with our sermon series, To Know Jesus and Make Him Known. So what you see on the screen, you see on the walls, the idea for us in this four weeks that we're spending in this sermon series is to take something off the wall and off the screen and get it into our hearts and into our hands. It is the heartbeat of who we are. It is our mission. But the mission has a tendency to fall into the background if it's not spoken to, if it's not uh, reignited and the flame of it reignited. And so what we're doing for four weeks is we spent the first two talking about what does it mean to know Jesus at a very fundamental level? What does it mean to know him and then to grow in him? And then the second two weeks, which starts today and ends next week, we're kind of going into what does it mean to make him known? And so what we're going to do today is let the Apostle Paul kind of be our guide. And, and what we're going to do is before we get into the tactical and the practical next week, we're going to actually just do some heart work this week because we believe that you have to want to before the how-to. You have to develop a want-to before the how-to. And so we're going to be in the book of Romans and then Paul's letter to Timothy, and he's going to kind of work us through as almost a framework of how do we develop a heart for others, a heart to make him known. And so we're going to put Romans 9, uh, 1 through 5 up on the screen so you can read along with me. Before we start reading, uh, I want to let you know that in, ver- in, in chapter 8, which precedes this part of Paul's letter to the Romans, It says, he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Then he says this famous thing that maybe you've heard before, neither death nor life, angels nor demons, present nor future, powers, height, depth, nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God and Jesus. It's this beautiful statement of our faith, of our security, of the beauty of relationship with Jesus that secures us forever, that keeps us in this beautiful, protected space with God, that nothing can slow us down, nothing can erase what God has done for us. And so he follows that up, this kind of celebration of our security in Christ with what we're about to read here. So he says, how beautiful is that? And then he follows it up with this. At the same time, you need to know that I carry with me at all times a huge sorrow. So he starts by saying how excited and wonderful and great the love of Jesus is. And then he says, and yet I carry a huge sorrow. It's an enormous pain deep within me. I'm never free of it. I'm not exaggerating. Christ and the Holy Spirit are my witnesses. It's, it's the Israelites, he says. If there were any way I could be cursed by the Messiah so they could be blessed by him, I would do it in a minute. They're my family. I grew up with them. They had everything going for them, family and glory and covenants and revelation and worship and promises to say nothing of being the race, the people that produced the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus who is God over everything always. Oh. This impassioned pouring out of Paul's heart as he considers the glory of being in Christ, and then he considers those he loves who aren't. So he says he carries a huge sorrow at all times, which asks us the question, for what do you carry a huge sorrow? When you look at the world, what creates enormous pain deep within? What breaks your heart? What gets you fired up? So when your sports team loses, when someone overshares on Facebook, and boy, isn't that annoying, when a politician you've never met says a thing you don't agree with, is it the environment or global poverty or natural disaster? What is the thing that breaks your heart? Paul says his is for his people, the Israelites. Paul was a good Jew. His heart is breaking for the Jewish people who've rejected Jesus as the Messiah. They don't know salvation, and it consumes him. It consumes his thoughts. It consumes his prayers. And he says so much that if he could be cursed, that they might be blessed, he would take that deal. If he could give up his salvation so that they might know it, he would take it. What consumes you? What consumes your thoughts? 
I would, I would probably guess that most of the things we think about are not the eternity of ourselves or the people we love. Because we don't have time to consider those sorts of things. How many of you just went to a major holiday gathering, Thanksgiving, Christmas, and at some point you looked around and the majority of the people were staring at small black digital rectangles? And you had the thought, isn't this funny that we're all in the same room once or twice a year and everybody is wanting to be somewhere else? Everybody's distracted by their phone. It isn't a statement about phones, it's a statement about us, that we live in a world where it is easy to be caught up in something other than the thing in front of us. We are creatures of our connectedness in this age. And it connects us to now. The connectedness that we benefit from in so many ways is also the, the, the connectedness that keeps us in now. Technology doesn't look forward. Technology looks at now. Technology doesn't connect us to our eternity. It connects us to our next minute and our next tweet and our next like and our next share, to the new article, to the next sports score. To the ne it's, it's, technology has now right in front of us all the time in an endless stream of different nows that are available to entertain us. And we've talked about this before, and I say technology isn't evil, technology isn't wrong, but it shows us something about ourselves over and over and one of the casualties of, of what is called the attention economy, because the point of the thing in your pocket is to keep your attention as much as possible. The casualty of living in an attention economy where your attention is monetized for others is that we lose some things. Daydreaming, pondering, ruminating. We lose out on that. Why think about the big things about our mortality and our eternity when I can put it off and read the next thing about the Major League Baseball cheating scandal. I can learn about the recruits for my favorite team. I can learn about the political thing happening leading up to next year. I can learn about the latest disaster and the latest news, the latest weather. How many times did I check the weather app yesterday? Is it snowing? It doesn't look like it's snowing. The app says it's snowing. It's not snowing. How much snow are we going to get? 4.5? 5.2? Hmm. If there was an app that said, salt your driveway now, clear your driveway now, leave your driveway now, I would have that app. And all I need to do is connect with another human, but technology is going to bring me back into the now. It's always going to bring me back to me. But here's the thing. People haven't changed. The same concerns and fears and joys, what you uh, know to be true, and, and hopefully you haven't been to a funeral in a long time. But what you know to be true is when you're at one, the same questions come up. As somebody who sits in the room with the family, as we mourn the loss, we grieve the loss of a loved one, the same questions come up. Whether they are vocalized or not, the questions in people's eyes and in their hearts and often in their, in their words is, is what happens when we die. How can I be sure that my aunt, my brother, my sister, my mother, how can I be sure that they are where you say they are? How can I know where they're going to be when they die? And what it tells me is when we have time to consider it, we realize how deeply this stuff matters to us. Like we said last week, Jesus in his final moments was talking about the most critical things. And the same is true of us. When we are in these profound moments of life, we are not talking about the little things in life. We're thinking about the big things. When we finally have the space and time and a meteor of emotion and, and life hits us, it reminds us what actually matters. So what about you? Are you thinking about your friends and your neighbors and your family members and their eternity? I would say probably, of course not, because who has the time for that? Because in the moment that you have free space and you have five minutes and you have a break in the action, 
there's something calling you to take it out and open it up. And, and I'm the chief at this. I'm, the, I'm leading the pack. I monitor the screen time app like you wouldn't believe, trying to always bring down the number of opens in a day. They'll tell me how many times I open my phone in a day. Just swipe open the screen. How many, how many hours a day? And you go, oh, you can look at your phone for hours. Oh, you can. I've done so much as hiding my email inside of a folder, inside of a folder, and I took off the little number that tells me how many emails I have, just so I'm not tempted to go and, and respond to emails in the boredom of the three seconds of nothing to do. But man, I'm really fast at getting through those folders and getting to that email, even if there's no number there. I can figure it out. Because something in me is deeply drawn to the idea that I might be able to be distracted from the eternal around me. Because it's unsettling to consider that for some people. It's unsettling to think about the state of my friends, my neighbors. It's unsettling because it, it, it gives me a challenge. What am I going to do about it? It's funny to think about an agrarian society for thousands of years where this wasn't a problem for people. You don't think about Paul walking the streets of Jerusalem, being on the boat on his missionary journeys with earbuds and trying to tune out the world. Peter comes home from a long day of fishing. And Peter's in his house getting all riled up watching cable news. This is not his reality. John the Baptist holding up the line as the next one's coming into the Jordan to be baptized because he's getting the Instagram filter just right on the previous baptism. Like, it's, it's just not the reality. And it's our reality. It's something we have to deal with. So it's an additional hurdle on top of our own human nature that goes, how do we live in an eternal place when... Everything in our culture tells us to focus on ourselves right now. The advantage that the pre-industrial people had was they talked like to other humans in person. The people had long meals where they had long discussions. The people didn't drive 70 miles an hour to the next thing, but they had to maybe walk for hours to the next place. And on that walk would have conversation and occasional silence. We have a new age with new hurdles, but it's upon us to consider what really matters to us. And I would argue that, that we are the uh, culture, our current society is the most inward-focused, the most self-focused, uh, dare I say, narcissistic culture that's ever existed. Family reunion is dying out. I don't know how many of you have been to a family reunion lately. I used to go to them all the time when I was little because that's what families did, I was told. My great-grandparents were Polish and Czechoslovakian immigrants, and they had a strong immigrant story and a tie to their brothers and sisters who had immigrated with them, and so we would go. And there was weird food and weird music and, frankly, weird people. And they would pinch my cheeks and ask me weird questions, and, and the oldest ones would talk in a language that was weird. And that's where you caught up and you, you saw cousins you'd never really seen, like, are, are you my, we're related? I don't know you. Oh, you remember me for last year? Okay. Are we supposed to play together? Can we all just go home? And that was kind of the way as a kid you experienced family reunion. But for the adults, you saw that there was a great joy in this reconnection. And it doesn't happen anymore. There's all kinds of data out there that the family reunion is dying. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Smaller families in general mean that there's not 10 kids that want to get back together. There's two. And so you, you just have Christmas. That wealth has created geographic dispersion. And so people can go all over the country now. We're not all kind of geographically confined, that we're less reliant on each other, that wealth creates an individualization in us. We're having a talk yesterday. My wife and I were 
I was talking about a do-it-yourself home project she's looking at doing, because if you didn't know, she is the handy one and I am not. All you need to know is I bought her power tools for Christmas, and that was her favorite thing by far. And she was saying, you know, I need this certain saw if I'm going to do that. And, and I was like, well, what do, you, like, what do you mean you need the saw? And she's like, well, I, I need the certain, and I don't know what kind of circular saw, miter saw, table saw, rotating saw. I don't know. I have no idea what it is. She needs a saw. And I stopped and I said, isn't it funny? And she said, no, no, what is funny? I said, how many saws do you think people at church own? She said, I don't know. I said, what do you think, 40 of the saw you need? Like, think, if we have four or 500 people that call Covenant Church their home. How many people have the exact saw you need and they use it, I don't know, once every three years? She's like, yeah, I bet there's 40 or 50 of those out there. And, And think about it. Our wealth enables us to never have to even deal with other people because if we needed a saw, we just go buy a saw. And so I have a saw, and you have a saw, and you have, and we all have a saw, and all of those blades are beautiful and sharp because they got used for that one project, and you never use it again. And in the old days, in the, the, the good old days, you borrowed stuff. And it isn't that we're, like, doing it wrong now. It's that you don't have to because wealth has created a whole other culture. But what that's done is created more and more individualization. And so instead of borrowing your stuff, I just buy my own. And my stuff is my stuff, and your stuff is your stuff. Assimilation as Americans has given way to this kind of cool melting pot thing, but it also gets rid of our identities as immigrants. No matter when your relatives came here, there's, there's less of a story there. Now we're all just Americans. Technology makes it easier to stay connected, and so the family reunion is sort of unnecessary because that Mildred has already shared everything from her entire life every day on Facebook. And so you don't need to drive four hours to go visit her and ask, how's your life? Because unfortunately, you already know. I think we think more about ourselves than ever before for a whole host of reasons. And as followers of Jesus, we have to learn how to cultivate hearts for others in a world that tells us to live for self. Ultimately, that's what today is about. We have to learn how to cultivate hearts for others in a world that tells us to live for self. And I would say this, you're already an incredible evangelist. You make known, if we're talking about knowing Jesus and making known, you make known the things you love like you wouldn't believe. You're already great at this. And some people in here are going, oh, that's not me. I can't do that. I'm not an evangelist. That's not my gift. You are. You are. Because if you love something, you share it. If you love something, you share it. You tell people online, offline, you can't help yourself. Nick, our community life pastor, was saying that, he says the best matchmakers a few weeks ago. He's like, you know what? The best matchmakers are like happily married people because they think everybody should be married because they're happily married. Why wouldn't you share that? So they're always trying to hook people up. And I was like, do you think people who are unhappily married aren't? Yeah, I guess that's true. They're the ones who are warning people, hey, you don't know. I don't know if you want to get into this. It's a lot of work. (laughs) Maybe both are true to some degree. But people who love something share that thing. That's why we share community group, and we tell you, you want to be in this thing. It isn't like a trick to get you into a religious hoop or something. It's going, look, it's not always easy. And yeah, it's another hour out of my week, and yeah, it's... It's a thing. you got to go meet people you haven't met before, but I promise you it's good. That's why we want to share it. That's why we want you in one, because when you really get into it and you experience the life and fellowship of, of real people and community, man, that's sweet life. And we love it, so we want you to love it. When's the last time you recommended something? Restaurant, pediatrician, your church? We moved here a few years ago. We got tons of evangelism headed our way, because every time we didn't know something, my wife would just ask. 
she put on Facebook, who knows a good pediatrician? And you got 40 responses. Hey, where do you buy this sort of thing? 40 responses. I would text a group of men going, do I shovel or snow blow or leave it or what? And they would tell me the right thing to do. They would know and they'd, hey, you need this tool and this thing. You need to think about it this way. Go to this website. Why? Because people who were smart, they loved a certain thing. They shared that thing. You know what my wife didn't get when she said, who should we see as a pediatrician for our kids? She didn't get people who shared, who weren't happy with their pediatrician. People who don't love their doctor don't share their doctor with others. Hey, Joe, should I go see your orthopedist? Yeah, I've got a really bad experience with him. You should definitely go. Oh, she was a train wreck. She was terrible, terrible bedside manner, but absolutely, you should probably check into that. It doesn't happen because you, you share what you love. If you love something, you share it. We went, uh, and we were in Novi last week, which is like the, the hinterlands of the Detroit area. We had to go to a store. We, we were making a return from Christmas. I bought my wife jewelry, and we needed to go to an actual physical store to return this jewelry. And, and their online website said their return policy was basically no. That was it. I was like, can I return this? No. They said exchanges only, no second yeses, no buts, no ifs, ands, none of it. You, you can't. And I was like, well, let's just drive there. Let's take a day. Let's go have a field trip. And so we, we drive to, to Novi, and we're in the mall, and we go into this store, and, and we're ready to fight. We're like, these people are going to tell me I can't return this. You watch. And she walks in. She's got her fighting face on, and we take this box in, and we go to hand it to them. And she's like, listen, I know your policy said. And before she can finish the sentence, they're like, listen, if you don't love it, we want it back. And we want to give you your money back. Oh. Are you, are you, but your policy, like, so now we're fighting against them. We're like, but your policy said no. And they're like, no, we don't care what our policy says. If you don't love it, we want you to have something you love. And if you don't love it, we'll take it back and you can have all your money. We don't care. And so uh, my great jewelry gift was now, I gave my wife cash for Christmas at this point, essentially. So the jewelry we returned, the power tools, she's very excited. And, and there was one part of that gift that was given by somebody else. And so we couldn't get our money back on that because it wasn't our money that bought it. And so she goes, okay, well, what about this one? And I said, yeah, go pick anything out. Pick something out. We'll just exchange it. It'll be, it's fine. Don't worry. She goes and she picks something out that she actually likes. She brings it back and she goes, listen, uh, there's like a $20, $30 price difference on the thing I like versus the thing I want to exchange. And they said, we want you to love it. So we're going to call it even. And we were coming in for a fight. And they had this whole concept of evangelism. They had it down. Because I'm telling you the story, it's Kendra Scott, okay? So now we've given them their due. It, insane. Because their policy says we don't take returns, and you walk in and they go, forget that. We want you to love it because they know that if you love something, you share it. And so coming in for a fight, we left, and my wife says, you can buy me that anytime. Because of that policy, because of the way they treated us, because of the way that they created this great experience and this love for... Yeah, you can buy me that anytime. Which we were going in going, we're never shopping here again, these fools. I'm gonna, and, and we left with this incredible experience because they got it. When you love something, you share it. And their whole store policy, once you walk in, is we want you to love it because they know better. What better advertising than creating love in others? Which creates a question in us. Is it possible that our problem is not that we don't really love evangelism because we seem to do that pretty well? is our problem that we don't really love Jesus. That's hard to say as much as it is to hear. We share what we love, and the question is, if we're not sharing Jesus, is it, is it that we just don't have a great love for Jesus? Because if you love something, you share it. Who do you share it with? You share what you love with those you love. 
So first, if you love something, you share it, and then you share what you love with those you love. Now, maybe, maybe you're different, and you share with complete strangers your new dish soap that really works to cut the grease, so that Netflix documentary that you think everybody should see, your new golf clubs or car. Maybe you just walk up to random people in restaurants and say, I need to tell you about my new car. Probably not. You probably share it with people you care about. We also warn people we love if we see danger coming. Don't buy that car. I just saw this negative news story. It will explode. Or don't vote for that person because bad things will happen. Or don't eat that thing because it will kill you. We warn people we love too. We don't warn random strangers. Again, you walk in a restaurant and you're not going to go up to a table and be like, do you know how much uh, saturated fat is in that? But if someone you love is trying to order it over and over again, you go, hey, hey, let's be heart happy here. Why? Because you have to love someone enough to risk relationship with them. Whether you're sharing something you love or warning them of something they're attempting to acquire, you have to love someone enough to risk relationship. Why is it a risk? Because rejection is put on the table. When you share what you love with someone and they go, ah, no thanks, that's rejection, and we're terrified of that. When you warn someone of something, hey, maybe don't do that, and they do it anyway, that's rejection, and we're terrified of that. And so the reason we share with those we love is because we can handle the rejection. The relationship is strong enough to get through that rejection. So even when your advice is trampled or your suggestion is ignored, okay, we can still do this together. Because you share what you love with those you love. And the words on the screen, you look at it, it's kind of a formula. What you love and those you love are the two things. So the question is, if we lack the heart to share Jesus with others, which of those two is the problem for us? Is it that we don't have a love for him or we don't have those we love and their best interests at heart? One of the two becomes the the formulaic issue for us because if we really love Jesus and we really love others and that's true of us, then evidence in our lives says we'll probably be sharing it. And that doesn't mean we're taking a Bible cannon and firing it down the street as we walk down and we're trying to send tracks. It's not that. It might mean that we're intentionally engaging in relationship and deepening our our walk with others so that we might slowly show the the love and grace of Christ. But if that's not an agenda in our mind, if that's not a thought when we think about those we love, then maybe something's missing. Paul goes on. He goes on in Romans 10. He says, Believe me, friends. All I want for Israel is what's best for Israel. Salvation, nothing less. I want it with all my heart, and I pray to God for it all the time. I readily admit that the Jews are impressively energetic regarding God, but they do everything exactly backwards. They don't seem to realize that this comprehensive setting things right that is salvation, it's God's business. And most flourishing business it is. Right across the street, they set up salvation shops and hawk their wares. He's speaking of their religious things. After all the years of refusing to deal with God on his terms, insisting instead on making their own deals, they have nothing to show for it. So Paul is now looking at his his Jewish brethren, and he's going, look, I want nothing more than salvation for them. I want nothing less than salvation for them. I want my brothers and sisters, my Jewish friends and relatives, I want them to know the Savior. And he looks at their behavior, and he goes, look, they got religion. They got plenty of religion, and they don't get it that that's not getting it done. It's a beautiful passage for a number of reasons. One, it ends the argument. It ends the argument that comes out of Romans 9. Some people will say that because God is sovereign, we just leave it to him. Uh, I read you verses 1 through 5 of Romans 9, and, and what you need to know is the rest of Romans 9 is kind of the tentpole passage for Reformed theology. That God is in control, that God is in charge, that it is God who makes the choice as to who might be saved, which is absolutely true. 
The problem is when it leads us to shrug our shoulders and decide that making Jesus known is really pointless because eh, God is sovereign. He'll choose. I'll have people come in and say, look, man, you're really pushing this evangelism thing. And, you know, see, look at Romans 9. What can you do? Which I say, that is lazy and unbiblical. It's lazy and it's unbiblical. Because Paul is the one who says it in Romans 9, that God is ultimately in control, that God is ultimately in charge. And in Romans 10, Paul then creates this invitation to participation for us. He knows that God's in charge, and he says, still says it breaks his heart. He wants with all of his heart, and he prays with all of his might that God might give them salvation. Now, if, if we were just to wipe our hands and leave it to God, is that what Paul is doing? No, Paul is saying God is ultimately in control, and yet I will live my entire life to see that I could be some part of this redemptive process for my people. I want it with all my heart. He says, I pray constantly about it. Paul establishes the theology of sovereignty that we hold to, and he focuses the desires of his heart and the content of his prayers on the salvation of his friends and loved ones. And so maybe if it's good enough for Paul, it should be good enough for me. If anything, God's sovereignty strengthens our evangelism. It's all in how we do it. We're called to be bold and still humble because we have nothing to lose. We are secured, and God is in control. We have everything to gain by sharing his love. We're called to be brave, but still patient. We can be involved, and we can be active, knowing that God is ultimately in control. It reduces the weight on us, and it puts it all back on God's shoulders. We are freed to go and live and share grace and love and hope and mercy with those around us without any expectation that what we are going to do is going to work. You heard the story about when the chicken and the pig got together and decided to make breakfast? chicken was invested, the pig was committed to the eggs and bacon. You wait for it, it'll come to you. It's a silly thing. Chicken is invested, the pig is committed. Maybe next time you have bacon and eggs, you'll think about it. It's kind of how it works with us and God. We're investing. We put something into the, into the thing, into the meal. God's committed. We invest our words in relationship. Jesus gave his life. Jesus sacrificed himself. Jesus paid it all. So because of this, this concept that he's fully committed and we're just invited to participate, we're able to prayerfully move on, prayerfully walk into the world to see our neighbors and our friends and to ask how we might be part of the participation in their redemption. God's sovereignty and our heart's desire should align and begin to leave us hopeful that we are invited to participate in his redemptive plan for the world. That, that, should, that should humble us and make us feel small, that God, in his great glory and grace, has not only invited us into the family, but he said, hey, I want to help use you. I want you to have the joy I have. So you want to go out and you want to share this with others? Do you want to you be like the mouthpiece of salvation for others? When you and I could have been brought into the family and been told to sit in the corner, all right, you're in. Now sit there and don't mess anything up. And instead, God in his great wisdom and grace invites us in and then sends us back out. And he goes, you're safe, and now it's time for you to go and do and experience what I've done. Great quote from St. Augustine says it this way, pray as though everything depended on God. Work as though everything depended on you. It's this beautiful tension. Of going, I, I will pray as if everything depends on God, because ultimately it does, but I'm going to work and use my life as if everything depends on me, because let me not be found lazy. Let me not be found wanting. Let me not get to the end of my life and go, you know, if I just would have, I just would have leaned in there. If I just would have said something here, if I, if I just would have been a little bit more open about that stuff. 
go back to Paul one last time. He's going to summarize this as we close today to 2 Timothy. Paul says this. He says, run away from infantile indulgence. Run after mature righteousness, faith, and love, and peace, joining those who are in honest and serious prayer before God. Refuse to get involved in inane discussions. They always end up in fights. God's servant must not be argumentative, but a gentle listener and a teacher who keeps cool, working firmly but patiently with those who refuse to obey. You never know how or when God might sober them up with a change of heart and a turning to the truth, enabling them to escape the devil's trap where they're caught and held captive and forced to run his errands. We use the, tr- the message translation today because it just unlocks in real language what's really happening. Run from infantile indulgence and chase mature faith. God is calling us to be a people of hopeful hearts. He says you never know when God might give someone a change of heart. And you and I, if we're honest, we look around the world and we go, gosh, that one's beyond redemption. Nothing I can do there. That's beyond my hope. That's beyond my scope. And the reality is none are beyond redemption. That there is no person too far that the love of Christ can't bridge the gap. That you and I know that from our own stories. You know that from the stories, the radical redemption stories that we have in our lives. My wife and I were praying for somebody recently furthest person from redemption I can imagine. Acute, painful place of our life. I said, before we pray about what to do, before we pray about how to act, before we pray about what, what's going on in this, in this hyper-complex part of our life, first thing we're going to pray is God's redemption. This person is far over the waterfall and then some. And we kneel and we say, God, just first redeem them, save them, restore them something. Because it's getting messy. But our first hope is that not too far, that God can do a work. Who have you written off? Because God didn't write you off. And the way that we cultivate a heart for others is to remember what was first done for us. We are here on this planet to cultivate hope be sowers and reapers of hope for the world in our own hearts and on behalf of others. He lays out how we do that. It's kind of a three-part plan from this, this passage in 2 Timothy. First, first part is run after mature righteousness. If you missed last week's sermon, go back on, online, go back to your podcast, listen to it. He's saying chase holiness. Run after mature righteousness. Grow your love of Jesus. Why? Because if you love something, you'll share it. And so if you grow your love of Jesus, you're more likely to share it every day. Part two, he says... Be an honest and sincere prayer before God. Which is to say, pray for those who are close to you but far from God. People say, who do I pray for? Pray for people who are close to you and far from God. That your love for them might grow. Why? Because you share what you love with those you love. Third and final, it says, be a gentle listener. Work firmly but patiently. And this is the beauty of our life in Jesus, is that we can be bold and at the same time humble, that we can be brave and at the same time meek, that we can be patient and steadfast and hopeful in all things. We have been given an invitation to participation in the redemptive work of the creator of the universe. 
if that doesn't get you fired up, if that doesn't reignite the flame and the passion of your heart for Jesus, if that doesn't remind you that you were created for a purpose, and part of that purpose is not only to be found, but to be part of God's finding of others, I don't know what to do. My prayer for us is that God would grow our love for Jesus, that God would grow our heart for others, and that God would grow our awareness in the everyday moment that we would put down the distractions, that we would grab the awareness of the redemptive work that we've been invited into. And that God would use every bit and piece of the culture we live in to remind us that it is ours to shape, that it is ours to be part of, that it is ours to be part of the redemptive process that he's working out in everyday life. That is our prayer and that is our hope. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the unfathomable love that draws us in. Thank you for the unfathomable grace that says none of us were beyond redemption. Thank you for the reminder that no matter where we are, that no matter what we've done, that you, you still invite us into the family. You invite us to be called sons and daughters, to experience your depth of grace and forgiveness, to know what it means to be whole again. Thank you. Father, use that remembrance and that beauty to remind us that it is ours to then, again, unfathomably, to be included in your redemptive work in this world. That you're inviting us to be part of seeing our friends and our neighbors, our loved ones, found whole in you. That the broken are made whole only in you. That the lost are found only in you. Lord, that you want to use us as part of that. Father, we thank you for including us. Thank you for inviting us. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.